We are back. And in this hour, too, we are doing all things legal. Some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry and some names that aren't so big aren't household names for sure. We're talking about their legal entanglements and attorney extraordinaire Alan Orr uh, agreed to stick around for hour two to help us make sense of some of these legal headlines. Alan, thank you so much uh, for being here in this hour. I want to start with the two African-Americans who are caught up in the 19, uh, the group of 19 that have been indicted in Atlanta by District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Uh, We know she has given all of these defendants until Friday to turn themselves in. And because this involves former President Donald Trump and members of his cabinet and his personal lawyers like Rudy Giuliani, they are getting most of the media attention, but there are two lesser known individuals who are facing uh, uh, pretty serious charges because they've been charged in this RICO indictment. And we know a RICO indictment in Georgia means a minimum sentence of five years up to the potential for 20 years in jail. So tell us what you know about Trevion Kuti and Harrison Floyd. Right. So it's very difficult to sort of know anything about Trevion other than the things that she has presented to herself uh, with regards to her work history and who she worked for. If she actually worked for R. Kelly, would she work for R. Kelly and in what capacity as a publicist? What exactly did she work on? And the same thing for Kanye West now, yay, with regards to her works within the methods. But in this case, she's able to thank Harrison Floyd, or as he's also known as Willie Floyd, um, for bringing her into the story because he's the one who invited her to go down to Florida, I mean, to Georgia, to sort of do this sort of action in the state of Georgia. So Harrison is someone who I think is, you know, he's a young Black Republican voice. I think he even ran for office in Georgia, the 7th District, and did not win. And then he sort of moved to D.C. area and started working in D.C. politics uh, for the military. And then he somehow got wrapped into this black for Trump's thing. And now it's sort of splintered into what is what it has become, which will be his downfall, because he's a young he's a young professional. Right. Regardless of his political assertion, he's a young professional with a young family who now is looking at a federal charge. And what we know about RICO federal charges is. It's more than just not having the right to vote. Well, well he's this is the Georgia state RICO, not federal. Yeah, state, right? Well, sorry, still felony. I, yeah, I need to wonder how that works out. I need to see how that works out in federal jobs when you have a felony at a state level, because for an immigration, a felony is a felony, regardless. Yeah, no, of they're felony charges. Felony. They're not federal. They're felony. Yeah. Yeah. Felony. Okay. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know how that will impact his ability to get jobs in the future, because generally in his circle, you have to get these clearances to get jobs, and you have to disclose things, and disclosing a felony in immigration or any other world, it's almost the kiss of death that you're not going to, you know, it's like checking the box. Um, and then plus the time of serving time, you know, my understanding is that he that he had really signed himself in the D.C. area to have to serve time in a Georgia facility when your family's far away and how are they going to be supported? And my understanding also is that none of these individuals who have been charged are receiving any legal funding from the Trump super PAC. So therefore, the ability to hire a lawyer at the level and the quality that you need to protect you in Georgia, just like some of those people mm-hmm. are having a hard time getting someone to protect them in Florida, is going to be difficult to afford and may cost you your house just to keep you from going to jail. So it's very it's a very scary time to be in to be in that lot of people because once again, what Fania said is 
you didn't have to do the worst of it. You just had to be involved in it. And now you get the full swing of it. Right. As a matter of fact, Kayvon apparently only had a, I mean, it wasn't a small incident because she definitely harassed those co-workers, but she lured them down to the police station to try to get them to confess. You know, that was her one action. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we know the RICO statute is all about uh, ensnarling everyone from the low level person. You know, these were these statues were really designed to uh, prosecute the mafia and they wanted to go for the mafia boss. But oftentimes they couldn't get to the boss. So they'd get these low level soldiers uh, and they would also be charged and face the same serious felonies, as you said, as the high level boss. So here you have Trevion and Harrison. So Trevion is, is charged with, as you said, uh, luring Ruby Freeman uh, down to a police station in Atlanta and trying to coerce her into saying that she uh, had been engaged in some kind of improprieties as it related to her job as a poll worker for the 2020 uh, presidential election. She was trying to get her to make a false statement uh, that would again support the big lie that Trump and his team was advancing, that somehow the Georgia election was was rigged, that it was fraudulent, that you know dead people had voted, et cetera. And Ruby Freeman held her grounds, even though she was harassed, her and her daughter were terribly uh, harassed uh, by Trump supporters. They had to move out of their homes. They had to go into hiding. Uh, so here you have this woman, as you said, who holds herself out as a publicist, now engaged in this uh, very serious RICO charge. There's a videotape of her trying to influence Ruby Freeman, again, about the supposed voter fraud in Georgia and all that's you know, outlined in this indictment. So here are two people who Trump probably doesn't even know their names, couldn't pick them out of a lineup, wouldn't know if he was standing next to them in his favorite McDonald's restaurant, mm. but they now are facing these very serious charges. And you raised the point of legal fees. Uh, some of Trump's personal lawyers, Rudy Giuliani, uh, to name one, are begging Trump to pay their legal expenses. And he is saying absolutely positively not every man for themselves uh, and as you said, this is a very expensive uh, legal fees. Lawyers can cost, you know, a thousand dollars an hour. Criminal attorneys often want huge retainers up front because they know people run out of money and it's hard to get off cases once you are involved in the case. So some of these folks uh, might be looking at having to come up with fifty thousand dollars plus just to retain a lawyer. And then let's talk about bail. So Trump's bail is set at 200. Some of the other folks they've identified have had their bail set at 100,000. And uh, again, Georgia's a state where you can make bail with just putting 10% down with a guarantee of some sorts, usually equity in a home to guarantee the rest of the amount. And many folks, uh, we're saying only 10%, but Everybody's not sitting around with ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars in a bank, plus the ability to pledge some kind of property or you know some other kind of instrument uh, that makes up the total of that uh, bail amount. So these people are in very very serious uh, trouble, and you'd have to wonder what they are thinking about how they got ensnared in this the the hysteria and the mania that you know surrounded these efforts to undo the 2020 election uh and now here they find themselves um 
and well, lots of a little bit of the Jeopardy. comedy with her is that she is you know miss scandal she is a she considers herself a crisis manager a fixer and she finds herself in this very dangerous situation and then you have rudy giuliani who rose to fame as a lawyer using rico i mean he's one of the first people who really used rico in new york city to get a lot of these mob boss in a very structured way right and then once again you have a black attorney in Georgia who has, I think it's 17 or 16 RICO charges in her career of managing who has reinvented what it is to do RICO. And the importance of it is because the concept of RICO is to get from the top to the bottom. So you don't have the injustice and inequities of the drug user in jail for so long, but not the drug seller. So that's really the function behind these RICO charges to make sure you're getting the deep pockets, just that you're really solving for what crime is supposed to solve for. And I think she's done a great job with the teachers and the others. So, you know, I think it's really interesting to watch from a legal mind to see exactly how this plays out in the time frame that she plays out. Because every day you see new evidence that sort of shows me this is going to be a pretty open and shut case. And some of these people need to start trying to do plea deals. I would be trying if I were representing any of those individuals, which I'm not, I would say it's time to talk. Yeah, we, we know, Alan, we're not going to see 19 of these individuals show up in court on Friday. Trump is already trying to negotiate, uh, turning himself in on Thursday uh, mm. to avoid the spectacle. Others are trying to work out deals with the district attorney. And in Georgia, apparently you can uh, reach a deal with the district attorney, come to a, a consent agreement around the bail amount and the conditions of your bail, mm -hmm. and then you don't have to actually show up in court until some several weeks later. So we're not likely to see all 19 of those defendants show up in court on uh, Friday. Uh, I, I, there's another story of one of these, uh, you know, indicted defendants. Uh, Jenna Ellis is mm -hmm. going to social media. Uh, she's on the social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter, Asking how come more Republicans and more Republican super PACs are not paying their legal bills. Mm -hmm. uh, so she is uh, trying to make sense of why she's on an island. <laughs> right. She had to go why, find me. She had to go find me that had about $4,000 in it. Yeah. Okay. So she's out there actively soliciting and requesting funding for her legal fees. Uh, this is really, really embarrassing, I would imagine, for some of these folks who had very stellar careers, people like Rudy Giuliani, who was revered in legal circles and political circles, to now have to beg uh, for you know, funding for your legal fees. It, it's well, also uh, as a lawyer for your livelihood and all the time you put into being a lawyer, you're every day trying to say, I'm trying to protect my license at all costs, because once you lose that license, you might be a paralegal somewhere, highly unlikely. But what other skills that are you going to fall in that sort of gives you the pay stage? So, you know, you basically have ruined your career. And so Jenna Ellis, once again, once you're in trouble, you decide that it's time to meet with the righteous side of your body. And now you want to tell and tell stories and start talking. And then you want to go against the former president when it's too late. And that's that's really the crime, not just of Jenna Ellis, but anyone who's standing with the president at this time frame, because it was attack on democracy. Yeah. And it's important that you mention their licenses, because as lawyers, we are all uh, given the privilege to practice mm -hmm. law after we take an exam uh, administered by a state. You get licensed to practice in a state. And all of these lawyers have their bar licenses being challenged. Uh, 
as well. John Eastman from California is in the midst of a bar-related disciplinary trial. He had asked the uh, bar, uh, the California State Bar, to suspend that hearing pending the outcome of this Fulton County indictment. And the California State Bar said, absolutely not. Mm. We are moving forward. So not only are these people having to come up with these expensive, uh, come up with the money to pay expensive legal Mm -hmm. bills, they are also having to fight. And these disciplinary hearings, you need lawyers for those hearings as well. So now you got to hire civil experienced bar lawyers to help you maintain your license. Michael Cohen is is famous for saying how his life was destroyed by losing his license to practice. You mentioned being a a paralegal. So let's put this in perspective. You are a lawyer at a firm and some of these folks were at very prestigious firms like Mm -hmm. Rudy Giuliani was. You might be billing a thousand dollars an hour and now your prospect of working in the legal field, you know, gets reduced to working as a paralegal. No shade on paralegals. Great, yeah, profession, great profession. A lot of respect for folks that are paralegals. But as a paralegal, you might be literally billing $100, $200, maybe tops $300 an hour uh, and your salary cut, you know, exponentially. So the fall from grace from these people. Maybe a partner. Is, <laughs> yeah, you can't be a partner in a law firm. You, you, you know, all those perks are gone. But listen to this, uh, Alan. You know, I, this this news is coming so fast and furiously. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Schlapp, who is one of Schlapp, Schlapp, who is one of Trump's allies, he suggested that the other GOP presidential candidates drop out of the primary so that the party can consolidate their resources and donations to pay the legal defense of all the folks caught up in this indictment. Mm, He says, the sooner we unify behind (laughs) a nominee, the sooner we can use resources to fund the defenses of everyone indicted for being a Trump Republican. And then, of course, Jenna Ellis uh, reposts this on X, which is formerly Twitter. Now, we know the chances of that happening are zero zero to none. uh, And even once a nominee is selected, the RNC is not going to spend its money mm-hmm. providing the legal defense for these individuals. Then it's going to be spending its money making sure that the nominee from the Republican Party is viable and can beat the Democratic nominee, which will be the presumptive, our presumptive nominee, Joe Biden. So uh, I, the reality for these people is Thank God we have a judicial system where everyone is entitled to legal counsel. And when you are broke and when you are low income, you can get a public defender. Mm. So these people will not be without counsel. They may not have big, high paid, you know, hired gun lawyers. Mm-hmm. The kind we see in movies and on TV shows. You know, this ain't going to be no Lincoln lawyer situation. Right. Uh, these folks, many of them will end up using the public defender's uh, office, which has some of the best lawyers in our county and in our state. So many uh, Howard grads, many Howard grads. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's going to be another irony. Imagine a bunch <laughs> of black public defenders, <laughs> right? Because that's what you're going to have in a public defender's office in Fulton County. I'm sure it's going to mm-hmm. be majority African-American mm-hmm. public defenders uh, having to show up to defend the uh, Donald Trump 18. Oof, life is full of ironies. <laughs> All right, when we come forward, we're going to talk about this Michael Jackson case. Uh, two 
Now, adult men who say Michael Jackson molested them when they were children, they have just gotten a reprieve from a California appeals court and a new law assigned by California governor that uh, gives them some reprieve with respect to the statute of limitation. Uh, can these two men prove their case if they are granted uh, an opportunity to do so at the trial level? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, we are covering some of the biggest legal news. These are stories that are making big headlines. And uh, there was a time when there was not an entertainer, an artist, a singer uh, bigger than Michael Jackson. And depending on what age you are, you probably remember all of the allegations against Michael Jackson related to uh, allegations that he had assaulted uh, boys that stayed at his Neverland ranch. Well, one of those lawsuits uh, has been revived. A three-judge panel from California's Second District Court of Appeals has ruled that the lawsuits of Wade Robson and James Safechuck, these are two men who allege that Michael Jackson sexually abused them for years when they were boys, uh, the appellate court said their lawsuit should not have been dismissed by a lower court. Uh, the court, this appellate court also ruled that two companies that Michael Jackson owned uh, that were named defendants in this civil lawsuit by Robson and Safechuck, uh, that these two uh, companies had a duty to prevent the abuse that these two men claim. Uh, now, they claim that they were abused in the late 80s and early 90s while staying at Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch in Encino, California. Uh, a judge had previously ruled that they couldn't sue Michael Jackson's uh, businesses, saying the companies didn't have a duty of care uh, to them. This appellate court disagrees. Uh, Alan Orr is with me. He's been with me uh, throughout the entire show. So big kudos to you. Thank you so much, Alan, for lending Thank your you. legal mind, your brilliance, your excellence. What did you, what was your initial response when you saw the California appellate court giving the green light uh, for these two cases, which I think most people thought were dead, uh, reviving these two cases against Michael Jackson's companies? It's very interesting to me. It's it's interesting and troubling with regards to depending on what side of the law you're in. And with regards to mounting a defense, because of the time that has passed, it's very difficult to sort of just all of a sudden jump back into that space. But also you want to honor the equity of the individuals who might have potentially have been harmed. But what you sort of follow the story is something that I think is also unique in the law now that you've seen with um, R. Kelly. You've also might have seen some of it with uh, uh, Bill Cosby. And now with the story is that, and, and, uh, and with the Tiger King, Lion King, that when there's a show on Netflix that sort of talks about this, it sort of brings the story back and revives it in the courtroom. And I don't know what type of justice that is necessarily. I don't know if, because those things are productions and we know that they're produced. And even while they may have some truth in it, we know that there's an entertainment aspect of all of those things. So why would a court after this show revival of public pressure then change where they are in the equities of it? Because it is, as someone who does represent companies, it is difficult to say a company had a duty if they didn't know exactly what was going on. And why don't their, why didn't their parents have a duty? Why didn't, you know, all these other people in this issue, where were their duties at the time with these, with regards to these children? So that's where I'm at. It's sort of problematic to me 
to sort of think about reviving this case specifically when they seem to be, you know, basically adults. Yeah, and I think and these men are in their late 30s, early 30s, late 30s, early 40s. Uh, one of them is 41, I think, and one is, uh, again, 38 or 39. And I think you're right. When these cases first came to light, uh, I think the initial response from a lot of folks is, well, wait a minute. How did these young boys get to Neverland? Where were their parents? What responsibility did the parents have? Now, obviously, we know in the law that doesn't necessarily relieve other entities mm -hmm. from being responsible. There could be multiple people, right, who had responsibility in addition uh, to the parents. And the question of the parents always comes down to, you know, what they knew, uh, when they knew it, if there were obvious signs, if there were other uh, acts that suggested that Michael Jackson was molesting or abusing kids at this Neverland ranch, if they had that information and still allowed their kids to go there. That's one question. But a, a bigger issue, uh, Alan, they're going to have, obviously, this is a big victory for these two defendants. Whenever you have a case dismissed at the trial level and you file an appeal and an appellate court agrees with you that the lower court made mistakes, and they send your case back down to the lower court to be adjudicated, of course, that's a big win. Uh, but these two individuals, uh, again, the appellate court's decision didn't rule on the merits. It didn't make a determination that the allegations of sexual abuse uh, has been validated or has been substantiated. And in fact, both of these men have given prior inconsistent statements. Mm -hmm. So Robson testified in a 2005 criminal trial involving Michael Jackson. And at that time, he testified on behalf of Michael Jackson and said that uh, Jackson had never molested or mistreated him. And then Safe Chuck, again, uh, as a part of an investigation involving Michael Jackson, he also said that he had never been molested or treated unfairly by Michael Jackson. So you raised the issue of the time frame that has expired. Michael Jackson died in 2009. These allegations, you know, happened, according to these two grown men, uh, in the 80s and 90s. They then have said that they were not molested. Now, their lawyers are claiming uh, they had kind of a delayed response. So they had like trauma and they weren't in touch with their feelings, but perhaps mm -hmm. through counseling or something else, they are now in touch with the fact that they were molested by Michael Jackson. But how is that going to play out? These prior inconsistent statements? I don't think it's going to play well. I mean, this is the part, I'll just be honest, this is the part of the legal career that I hate the, hate the worst, right? Because this seems to be about the money and the attorneys getting paid. And I will tell you that, you know, to do an appeal is expensive. Right. So I wonder how much money they have left in the tank to sort of ride this case for the attorneys to potentially get paid at this point, because it's all about the money. Because with regards to justice, Michael Jackson is not going to jail. There's, there are no repercussions with regards to what we sort of think about in those equities. So it becomes troubling and somewhat similar to court clock. And it also creates this really uncomfortable position for me with regards to companies being responsible for employees or owners who sometimes act outside of their official duties because now these companies potentially have deep pockets. And it seemed odd to me, and I was trying to figure out, like, why are they not going after the estate? Like, what are they Well, they did have a lawsuit against the estate, but they lost. And that, that mm -hmm. lawsuit is dead. So no, this is not, this is important that we distinguish. 
these two lawsuits that have been revived are against two companies that Michael Jackson owned mm -hmm. where he was the sole shareholder, not the estate. Yeah. Well, I mean, those are really aggressive tort lawyers going for, you know, big pockets and aiming in all directions. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to prove inconsistent statements, time frame, passing. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't toll that it meets the standards of fair justice in court for anybody at this point. Yeah. Uh, do you think, Alan, the response would be different if these were women rather than men? Do you think if these were 39 and 40 year old women that mm -hmm. were claiming when they were eight, nine, 10 years old that they went to Neverland and Michael Jackson, a male, assaulted them as women? Do you think the public's response would be different? Well, I think the public response is what led to the revival of their case anyway. So I don't think that it would be necessarily different. I do see, I, for me, I don't see the equities being any different with regards to the time frame. Although we saw a lot of those Me Too cases sort of come up, but they were not children. We have seen some revival of child cases, offenses that happened before, but those individuals are alive. So there is some level of justice to be served in saying, we're going to arrest this person up. They're going to go on a register roll. They won't be able to do this again. Yeah, and another important part about this case, so just to give folks the timeline, Michael Jackson dies in 2009. These two men filed their first actions in 2013 and 2014. At that time, the lawsuits were dismissed due to the statute of limitations. But then California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a new law in 2020 that extended the statute for child sexual abuse allegations. So they got to refile their cases the cases were refiled, dismissed again in 2021, and now the cases have been revived again. This waiver of the statute of limitations in sexual abuse cases, we're seeing this happen, not just in California, in right. New York, Nevada. And in fact, E. Jean Carroll, who mm, won exactly. her $5 million <laughs> verdict against Donald Trump, did so because New York opened up its statute of limitations. What do you make of that and how? The Me Too movement gave fuel to state legislatures, particularly in liberal states like California and New York, right. to create these windows of opportunity for people to sue in cases that otherwise were, you know, uh, date, you know, were were stale. And point that I, so, is there? So lawyers do this all the time. There's a difference between the criminal court and the civil court. So the tolling sometimes is different in between the different courts with regards to what claim you're sort of bringing. So it's. I see it fine on the criminal side of the court it's, it forever, right? Just like with murder, right? If, if you're alive and you did something and they can prove it and you can defend yourself in court and justice finds that you did it and you serve the time. But in this case, where the person who they're saying did something no longer is around and it doesn't seem to be a criminal matter, it seems to be a civil matter, which means it's about money to me. It doesn't sort of meet the test of justice for me. I don't know how it could play out. And I, I totally agree that people who were harmed as children should be rectified and find justice under the law. But in my case, as from where I sit as a lawyer, and it's hard for me to say this, I see people looking for money, not for, for, for justice. But what would change your mind, Alan? What set of facts might cause you to believe that these are righteous claims? Obviously, the jury in E. Jean Carroll's case in New York believe that Donald mm -hmm. Trump and the judge you know, has made it very clear. He uses the term rape as we understand right. rape, sure. uh, you know, the, our common understanding of the, the concept of rape. So those jurors sitting in New York, the town that, you know, was sure. once Donald Trump's town said, yeah, this was 30 plus years ago, but we believe there's enough evidence here 
to establish a cause of action to grant compensatory damages. And then she had a defamation case too. There were also punitive damages. Right. So the difference in justice for me is the defendant is allowed to defend himself, right? There's some equity in that of the person being able to appear and have a righteous defense of themselves. So I don't know if Michael Jackson addressed any of these charges before on tape, which I guess may be in that Neverland film and all the other things that sort of involved with it. But in this case, there is no Michael Jackson to come in and say anything. We're asking a corporation to come in and speak about what Michael Jackson did when Michael Jackson passed away many years ago, and they can't speak to it. And we're holding their stockholders equitable for it. So for me, that's the distinction that I'm making. Injustice, just like we talked about prior, even though I think that our president, our former president, didn't make good decisions, he still deserves to have a lawyer in court to defend him, to stand up and to face his accusers at the time that he had them. So all of these things are spurious to me in some ways that just don't, they don't speak right to me. I don't, it doesn't feel right in my spirit because we all know that there are people, there are tort chasers who go out and find these cases to sort of bring them. And I don't think it sort of sets precedent. And what it doesn't really do to me is stop children from being abused. That's not what it does. What about this? So in this case, there is apparently an estate manager who worked at Neverland during the time of the alleged abuse. He claims that he witnessed several incidents of suspicious activity while working at the ranch, including finding uh, Jackson's and the plaintiff's underwear lying next to his be- to Jackson's bed. He says he also saw Michael Jackson put his hand down the front of one of these guys, uh, you know, shorts while the two were in the jacuzzi. He said he heard gossip among the staff that Jackson Jackson was having an affair with one of these men and that they were sleeping together. Uh, what do you make of that? Did you notify the cops back then? He probably didn't, right? So this newfound knowledge to me, I mean, I always find people in this situation also, once again, the defendant's not there to defend himself. I actually would, you know, if I could, I would charge him because he was there. He allegedly knew these things would happen. He did nothing about it under the Good Samaritan sort of clause or hampering law or whatever I could think of to sort of go along that sort of sort of tone. I understand what the point is, but what is, for me, I became a lawyer to look for justice to show that people are either made whole from something that happened to them or that you prevent some other crime from happening in the past. And this suit doesn't seem to address any of those. So, Alan, you talked about the liability or potential liability, because, again, this appellate court decision is not deciding the merits right. of the case. It's just saying uh, this case shouldn't have been dismissed. It has to go back to the trial court. And the the entities involved are the MJJ Productions and MJJ Ventures. Now, the defense argued that Michael Jackson was the sole owner, the sole shareholder of both of those companies, and thus had no authority to supervise himself or manage his conduct. The appellate court uh, rejected that argument, saying that for practical purposes, uh, Michael Jackson was these corporations and the corporations were him, and that, you know, in a sense, they were doing his bidding or he's he is responsible mm-hmm. because he is the corporation. Do you think that's a, a sound legal argument by the appellate court? You, I mean, totally, you could try it. Um, I It would take more fact of a more a larger fact pattern to sort of rise of the responsibility of those corporations for the owner of those companies. And it's sort of newfound stuff that I just haven't seen in tort law, where a company who has an official who has passed away is going to be held accountable for something that may or may not have happened. They can't prove and they can't defend themselves. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I not taking Michael Jackson's side, 
not taking their side, just saying in court, it may not be resolved. It also sort of speaks to me as like, why wasn't this settled a long time ago? Generally, this is the type of thing that people settle because what it seems that the MJ corporation is do is, is you know, basically riding them to, to run them into debt, right? Appeal, appeal, yeah. back in court again. Those are all fees you got to be paid before you get paid. And then even if you get a judgment in court, as we may talk about in a minute, then when are you going to get it enforced? Yeah, well, I, I think one thing that's clear, the defense is arguing that, uh, you know, they were disappointed, obviously. They maintained Jackson's innocence. And they said two distinguished trial judges had already dismissed these cases, uh, you know, on numerous occasions before over the last decade because the law required them to do so. So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, still litigation over this concept that these Can't two corporations had a duty to prevent the harm. Now, the appellate court says, look, they could have, you know, Michael Jackson, you are the corporations. You could have prevented the harm by just exercising self-control, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't take any elaborate uh, measures for you, the corporation, i.e. the same person, to prevent this harm from occurring if, in fact, you know, it did occur. But I think this issue of the liability, the, the duty, because we talk about this kind of conduct right. from a corporation, because you know, what is the duty that the corporation owned to these mm -hmm. individuals? Seems like there's going to be a lot of uh, ongoing litigation about that. So even if they and win. New law. It's just new law. I just, I mean, of course, mind you, I've been out of tour class for 30 years. I took the bar, got that done and sort of haven't sort of followed it. But I would have seen this come up if a corporation had been held liable in this sort of situation. And it's, and it's just interesting to me. It's a very interesting situation. Yeah, no, it's unusual, definitely uh, unusual. And it's a novel theory, obviously a novel theory. And these plaintiffs have caught a tremendous break. One, Newsom signs this law in 2020 mm -hmm, yes. that opens up the statute. Big, big break. Because mm -hmm. once the statute is run, the statute is run. There's no recovering from that. And then this appellate court that says, yeah, there is potential liability if these facts are true on behalf of these two, again, entities, Michael Jackson Productions and Michael Jackson Ventures, which is not his estate. Uh, real quickly, Cardi B. Cardi B uh, stepped out there. She filed a defamation action against uh, Tasha mm -hmm. uh, Kay saying she defamed her. And she won big. And mm -hmm, Cardi big. said, I want my money. She's trying to mm -hmm. collect like three, four million dollars that she won in this, this civil verdict. And Tasha is saying, I'm broke and I'm mm -hmm. going to be filing for bankruptcy. Right. What's going to happen to that case? Yeah. I mean, that's it. She's broke. You can't get money from a turtle. One of the greatest things I ever learned working in a law, large law firm was to make sure you go after the deep pockets and make sure they have the money at the time the judgment is sort of held because you can win many times many amounts of dollars and then the person has no money or they're upside down as you've seen in many of the Trump situations and you just don't get the money because as we all know the court doesn't have an army to go out and enforce something of that nature in the first place so sort of right. getting fulfillment of the judgment is also just another task to turn over to some collection agency which may in fact lead you to nothing but them bank going bankruptcy and then you going in court and getting a penny on the dime so yeah. you know Natasha's a blogger. She wrote, yeah. uh, according to Cardi, and according to this, you know, this court case, lies saying that Cardi had an STD. She used yeah. cocaine. She engaged in degrading activities with a beer bottle. She worked as an escort. I mean, she went on. She just 
you know, Red Cardi be up and down and Cardi went to court and won big. Uh, and you're right. Sometimes, you know, it's a hollow victory because the defendant does not have deep pockets. But she uh, did win something important. She taught a lesson to people out there making those stories. So there was a win for her to stop people from dragging her name and reputation. There are repercussions. Absolutely. So uh, both of you, I, both you and I both agree. Uh, kudos to Cardi B. We are out of time. Thank you so much, uh, Alan, or helping us break down Pleasure these uh, big you. legal cases. Uh, all of these, uh, the cases we've been talking about, you know, involving famous people that have millions and millions of followers, the beloved people like Michael Jackson. The Michael Jackson case, we're going to continue to watch because it's going to be interesting to see what happens once this case gets back to the lower court. If there is finally a trial on the merits and these two men have to come into court and tell their truths, uh, just because they're men doesn't make their cases any more important than the women victims that we've seen come forward in these kinds of cases. So uh, we're going to withhold any kind of judgment on what happens in in this case.